This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The military just yesterday relaxed its restrictions for its personnel traveling to Hawaii. But nearly two weeks ago, Adjutant General Ken Hara agreed to exempt military men and women and their families from the 14-day state quarantine. Honolulu City Councilwoman Kim Pine told us her staff flagged the order as it was quietly signed and issued on a Friday afternoon. Her concern is that the move doesn't help with the growing tension between the military and the local community. It was very alarming to us, of course. I represent a very large veteran and military population. I'm a military family myself. My grandpa was a Pearl Harbor survivor. So we know what it's like to be a military family. We know the moves that happen, and I especially know that quarantine anyone coming in is important because if we're going to make our local rep- local residents do that, then it just should be equal across the board with no special cases for anyone. So what was it that struck you when you heard about this? Well, I think allowing the military family members to not be in quarantine, that didn't make any sense to me because as a military spouse, I know the incredible support that I had when my husband was in the Middle East and I had a baby. And I felt like I had a lot of people that could help me to go to the store help me with other things that I need to get signed up for. And so that one was confusing to me because it didn't make any sense and it wasn't even necessary. So how are you thinking that the Hawaii community is looking at this exemption? They're very upset. There's been a lot of inequalities during the whole pandemic and decisions that were made that benefited certain people more than others. We revealed that certain businesses that have specialties in dealing with viruses and other things were not open uh, in comparison to these large box stores that had not a lot of training with their staff, but they were a big company that had very wealthy lobbyists to ensure that they were open, but a mom and pop store couldn't be open. And then you have a lot of the residents here that either lost their jobs, their businesses, and They had to stay home and couldn't go out and work. And to hear that there are people coming in that were getting special treatment, it was very upsetting to them. And so my whole role was to just ensure that any decision that government makes is equal across the board. It's a sense of fairness. This came out just after, you know, there was the incident at and a point, and I think Waimea Bay, where folks were holding parties, you know, clearly against the uh, advice of health officials about, you know, physical distancing. Yes, and so for this letter to come out right after that happened, where a lot of the residents, and even many military families like mine, were very upset because we're following the rules, but this group of people, of several hundred people, were blatantly having illegal parties with alcohol and other substances and trashing beaches that were pristine because they weren't being used so much. It was extremely disappointing. And I believe the companies uh, that were involved in that had an address on a military base at Schofield. Yes, and I'm very proud, though. Uh, I, I wrote a letter to the head of the Pacific Command, and they responded immediately, and they said, you know, we are going to look into this and take this very seriously. And 
there will be some type of uh, punishment of some sort for those that they find were part of this because they don't want to have that reputation either. And so I was working hard to calm the nerves of all of the residents who were very upset that they're, they sacrificed yet These people just come and trash public spaces and not pay attention to the orders. And then this letter came out like just a few days later, I think, and it was very upsetting. And so I'm having to calm all these different situations down and it's been very difficult. I know there is also some concern because the military is not disclosing as much information about COVID positive cases on bases on, you know, various military installations, you know, for security reasons, you know, after what we saw with the uh, Roosevelt aircraft carrier out in Guam. Any thoughts on that? When you're a military family, you just hear all these stories from other military wives. And, and I was hearing about all these cases and was very upset that it wasn't being reported. However, they are reporting the cases to the Department of Health. However, it's not public what the situation was or where. And that's very important that we know these things. Like like we could tell you that we just had a recent cluster with a white fossil family, but we couldn't really report or deal with that there was a cluster on a ship or on a base. And that's very frustrating for the local community who are not going to negatively brand anybody, but we just need to know how are these clusters happening and how can we prevent it from happening in the future. I had residents who worked at different bases who felt that they were exposed to uh, COVID-19 from an outbreak that occurred on a base. And... They were just told to quarantine for 14 days and weren't given access to uh, get tested. And so I'm having to help them get access to testing. So it's very frustrating dealing with these federal agencies. It's not just military, but when it's a federal agency that thinks they're above you. And we're here, I am fighting for just the average local person who has sacrificed so much and just wants everyone to sacrifice the same. Are you aware of what other jurisdictions are doing? Are they giving the same exemptions? I'm not aware of that. And and again, I, I'm, I understand that certain exemptions have to be made for certain jobs, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have to be a blanket exemption where you don't have certain rules and regulations. Say, okay, if we're going to exempt you, you can only come to this office, but there's all of these rules and regulations that you have to follow so that you don't get anyone sick if, if you happen to have it and don't know. Uh, I think that was the part that was very frustrating, too, is that it was a blanket exemption where I saw other military bases who were very good, I have to say, that created their own rules that said, like, for example, my husband had to travel during COVID, and so he had to quarantine for 14 days. And that was imposed on him uh, by his military branch. And, of course, then I had to quarantine. We all had to quarantine in the house. Uh, because of that and you know luckily we were all fine after those 14 days and the military often uh, does things first and and takes uh, actions that some might see a bit extreme because I think early on they were restricting travel for uh, military men and women back at the beginning of the year yes and actually before the governor did 
his quarantine, they were already quarantining everybody that traveled. So that's why I was so surprised to see this because all the actions that they had taken before that have been very strong and, and promoted safety. And so it's just a lot of mixed messages in terms of what the military represented. And so my whole career as someone who's both a local and also a military family has been to make sure that we bridge the gap between these two types of residents because having conflict between these two types of residents is very damaging to our society. And to not have the military here during this time of crisis worldwide would be a scary thing for us. It all, they also give us a lot of local jobs, but at the same time, it doesn't mean because of that that they should have special treatment in any way. That was Honolulu City Councilwoman Kim Pine talking about a matter of fairness when it comes to the enforcement of the 14-day quarantine for travelers, whether they be civilians or military personnel and their families. Uh, General Mahara has not responded to media questions or Pine's letter. Pine is one of 18 candidates who have filed papers to run for Honolulu mayor. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ekahi Health, focusing on comprehensive care and wellness programs to help people better manage chronic conditions such as diabetes and cardiovascular disease. More at ekahihealth.com. It's now time to take a look across the globe. Legal action has been threatened in Italy over alleged failings in the handling of the pandemic as the EU is urged to allow travelers in from outside Europe. All that and more from the BBC. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday the 10th of June. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. Legal action in Italy over alleged failings in the handling of the pandemic. Dire warnings about the state of the world economy. Could an earlier lockdown in the UK have reduced deaths by half? And the EU is urged to allow in travellers from outside Europe. Relatives of coronavirus victims in Italy are taking legal action over failings in the way the pandemic was handled. The complaint was submitted in the northern city of Bergamo, one of the worst-hit parts of the country. Danny Eberhard has the details. They stood outside the prosecutor's office wearing face masks, declaring the group's name. We will denounce. They're interested, they say, not in revenge or compensation, but in justice. They and their dead loved ones were abandoned, they say. One woman, Christina Longini, described having to try to find an intensive care bed for her sick father, as all were full. She wasn't called when he died. His body, like many others in Bergamo, was taken away in an army lorry. She only found out where he was cremated when her family was sent the bill. The world economic outlook has been described as dire in a new report by the Global Economic Forum, the OECD, with the prediction that the global economy will shrink by at least 6% this year. Among developed nations, the UK is likely to be the worst affected. The global recovery will be slow and uncertain, and that is without a second wave, as the OECD boss, Jose Angel Curia Trevino, explained. The 6% decline in global GDP that we foresee in 2020. That is in the scenario where no second wave of infections happens. In the event that it would, the fall in global GDP would be over 7.5%, and we'd be looking at perhaps 40 million more unemployed. 
A key adviser to the British government at the start of the pandemic has said introducing the lockdown a week earlier would have halved the number of deaths. The UK has the second highest number of fatalities in the world at more than 40,000. Professor Neil Ferguson, who was forced to resign from the government's advisory group after breaking social distancing rules, was speaking to MPs. The epidemic was um, doubling every three to four days before lockdown interventions were introduced. So had we introduced uh, lockdown measures a week earlier, we would have reduced the death, a final death toll by at least a half. The World Health Organization has called on Pakistan to impose a two-week lockdown. The country has seen a surge in deaths and new infections since lifting virtually all its restrictions. The WHO is also warning that the virus is spreading exponentially in many areas of Central and South America. The head of the Pan American Health Organization said COVID-19 was advancing aggressively in countries like Brazil and Peru and surging in places where it had previously been limited. Carissa Etienne was speaking at an online briefing. Case counts are rising in Mexico, Panama and in Costa Rica, where we are seeing increased transmission around the Nicaraguan border. In the Caribbean, cases are on the rise in Haiti, and after more than a month without a new case, Suriname reported a spike this past week. New figures suggest coronavirus contributed to 5,260 deaths in Moscow last month. That's more than 2,000 higher than the previous official total for the entire outbreak in the Russian capital. Countries in the EU are being advised to allow in travellers from outside Europe next month. They've been banned since mid-March. The EU's foreign affairs chief, Josep Borrell, said most internal borders would open by the end of June and then other restrictions should gradually ease. The lifting of temporary travel restrictions at external borders will come at the second stage. Later this week, the college will put forward an approach for the gradual and partial lifting of these restrictions as of the 1st of July. The EU has also said that Facebook, Google and Twitter need to step up their efforts to fight the spread of false claims about COVID-19. Officials say disinformation can undermine public health responses and even kill. The social media groups are being asked to give monthly updates on their actions. Finally, organisers say the postponed Summer Olympics won't have the usual grand splendour. They say the Tokyo Games next year will be simplified, with a focus on providing a safe environment while minimising costs. The organisers are reportedly considering reducing the number of spectators and scaling back the opening and closing ceremonies. And that was the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a mission to create transformative experiences through art and committed to standing with the community during this time. Updates on reopening at honolulumuseum.org.
You know, with the nation waging war on COVID-19, healthcare professionals from all over the country are doing what they can to pitch in. Tanya Gillen, a former Oahu resident, is one of them. She's a registered nurse working on the front lines at Henry Ford Hospital in Michigan. When we spoke with her in April, the state had over 31,000 coronavirus cases. It now has nearly 65,000 confirmed cases and more than 5,900 deaths. HPR producer Russell Subiano spoke with Gillen to get a sense of what's working in the midst of a pandemic was like. So they have developed a panel, so a blood work panel, specifically for the COVID virus. That's a pretty good indication if somebody has it or not. I mean, but it's really easy to tell. Almost everybody that was admitted and they're coming on a stretcher from the emergency room, they don't have a mask on at first. I don't think anybody really understood how contagious it was. So, you know, we're dressed in these suits head to toe and we're receiving the patient and they have no idea. They're just sick. They think maybe they have the flu because nobody really knew. And then we're, you know, washing them down. We're doing all these things, blood work and hooking them up to the monitor and they're freezing. They have a number of 103, 104. They're coughing. They can't breathe. Their regular oxygen saturation is above 92. They're in the 80s, so they're severely hypoxic. And these are people of all ages, right? We're not just talking, you know, the elderly. And some of them are getting delirious, so now they're not even able to follow commands or any instructions, and they're just wanting to leave, and they're not understanding what's going on. They don't know where they are. They don't even know who they are really difficult to manage a lot of the patients as well just because of that and then you you know you're dressed up so you can't just walk around in the hallway freely it takes you a good five to ten minutes to do everything properly you gotta you know wash your hands with the alcohol and then you put on the set of gloves and then you they want us to wash the gloves with the alcohol put on the gown and then again you're going to put on another set of gloves and they want you to put the alcohol over those and you're going to put on your mask and you're going to wash your gloves again with the alcohol and put on a shield and or goggles, whatever you have, and you're going to put on a hairnet, you're going to put on the footies, and you're going to make sure you have all of your supplies that you need, if it's medication or whatever, to go in that room, and then maybe you're going to spend an hour to two hours in there with that one patient and make sure you get everything done. That way you don't have to go back in there for some time unless it's absolutely necessary to limit your exposure. And you're going to do that times if you have three patients or four patients, sometimes up to six patients you have on a regular medical floor. Now ICU, you're going to have a different picture. So you have vented patients and they have every medication you can think of, a whole array of different things going on depending on their underlying medical condition and whatever they need for sedation. We have people on morphine and dilated um, to keep them, keep their pain down, keep them sedated and or we paralyze them with some kind of agent as well. We don't want them pulling out that tube and then they have to have some kind of catheter so that their urine goes into a bag, not all over the bed. And then a lot of these patients are having such severe issues with their lungs that we're having to put in chest tubes because their lungs are collapsing, uh, then they're bleeding. The virus is 
changing things in your system. So instead of your white blood cell count going up, it's going down, which is the opposite of normal infection. But we're not really giving antibiotics, we're giving steroids. And then some of the patients need sleds. It's like a dialysis machine. So they get put on that for 24 hours and because their kidneys are shutting down. So they go into complete kidney failure. The virus is creating this problem. And they don't have to have any history of kidney issues for that to happen. Some people are getting all of it, and some people are getting one and not the other. Maybe they don't really have respiratory issues, but their kidneys failed, so you don't really know. Or some people are having a heart attack, and then you're in this really hypercoagulable state, so you're throwing all these clots everywhere. It's creating chaos in your body all around. That's a picture that I have not heard painted before. What's the approximate amount of doctors and nurses that are treating coronavirus patients there? work at Henry Ford downtown, so Henry Ford main campus in Detroit, and we've essentially turned the entire hospital uh, into a corona treatment center. So everything is for corona. We only have a few departments that remained open minimally. I mean, on the most circumstantial basis that it is necessary. Like if you're having a baby, you you still need to be able to go to the hospital if you're high risk. They're trying to encourage people not to come unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, obviously, the NICU for the premature babies and our transplant center. And we still need an area for the neurosurgery patients or stroke, which, you know, it's very interesting when this all came about. Where did all the people go that used to come to the hospital? Because we were full on a regular basis. I mean, there was no lack of patients. And now it seemed they all disappeared, all the stroke patients and all these neuro patients that need surgery or, you know, immediately, they all kind of just disappeared. Or maybe they're affected by the corona. I don't really know, but our whole hospital is essentially for corona. And we have tents. We have a drive-through testing center. The emergency room has preliminary tents before you enter, and then they kind of make it, you know, you make your way through so that way you're not overexposing everybody. Um, We all have a P100 mask to protect ourselves. What's the general morale of the hospital, and what's kind of the general morale of the area? Well, I mean, Detroit is has its own culture so I mean people seem to be a little bit frustrated that they can't do what they want to do and then other people are really scared but the staff at the hospital I mean some people are a little bit frustrated with the supplies sometimes we're a little bit short so we've been using garbage bags on occasion to protect ourselves but Overall, Henry Ford has been doing a really good job of providing supplies that they bought us these. They're like a helmet, essentially, and it has a face shield that goes down, almost like if you're going into a riot, looks like that. And then they bought us P100 masks. So those are the ones that you can have the removable filters, and you can reuse the mask. It's made of some kind of rubber material. So those are much better than the N95s that they're providing. They don't filter, N95s don't filter out everything, right? I mean, we're doing pretty good. Everybody's kind of pitching in and and really giving it their all and making sure that the patients are, are getting, you know, getting the right care. We're all just a team. That's good to hear. Is there anything Hawaii healthcare workers or listeners here in Hawaii should know Living in Hawaii and understanding the culture there, and I mean, it's a very transient place, especially on Oahu, right? There's lots of people coming and going, lots of visitors and military personnel, and 
very social environment. You know, we're at the beach, we're, we're hanging out outside the park, whatever you're doing, you know, you're having a cookout. Just be mindful of your encounters with people, where you're going, you know, bring sanitizer if you have to go out. You know, you don't know where people have been and who they've come in contact to. I think that's kind of what this virus is showing us. Just be really mindful. I think that Hawaii has a unique opportunity in that they are segregated from the rest of continental USA, and they should definitely use that to their advantage and protect themselves because there are so many people that want to come there, and they probably will once it's reopened. So I think they should just be really mindful and careful. That was former Oahu resident Tanya Gillen talking to HPR's Russell Subiono. Uh, Gillen is a registered nurse working directly with COVID-19 patients at Detroit's Henry Ford Hospital located in Wayne County. Uh, It's the area in the state hardest hit, uh, reporting more than 20,000 cases and 2,500 deaths due to the coronavirus. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii, committed to the community's safety and dedicated to customers' financial preparedness, offering the ability to bank from home with mobile and online services 24-7. BOH.com. And joining us for today's reality check is Honolulu Silver Beats business reporter Stuart Yurton, who has news of how COVID testing at CVS Longs could be in the cards. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so tell us about this story. How's that supposed to work? Well, uh, the idea, and again, it's being worked on. uh, The lieutenant governor, Josh Green, uh, told us about it yesterday. Uh, The idea would be to um, have testing available at CVS pharmacies across the U.S., and the testing could be done for COVID-19, could be done before people uh, get on the plane, and uh, before they come. And again, the details of how this would be documented and, and worked out um, still isn't uh, uh, final, but the idea is people get tested, they get cleared, uh, they test negative, and they can come here and not have to deal with the 14-day quarantine, which is keeping people from coming here. Right. Now, we did a story earlier about how a number of doctors at Queens and uh, at Queens Hospital, doctors and nurses, I think 450 of them, signed this petition uh, kind of saying just that, that we ought to have this test as a carrot for people. Get a test before you get on the plane, and you don't have to go through this 14-day quarantine. Yes. Uh, this is hugely popular from what we can tell. Uh, we, I, The lieutenant governor talked about polling. They had done that showed this was a very, a, a very popular idea. Um, we Obviously, there's a lot of support to get tourism open. Um, a lot of people are unemployed, so the economy really depends on it. And uh, this would be a way to to do it uh, a lot more safely than simply letting people come. And the, I'm sorry. No, uh, we did talk to some House Republicans. I know they were advocating the same thing. Uh, you know, tests before people come in. Uh, so, so this is something that we're hearing from just different places, uh, you know, different corners uh, in our state. That's right. Yes. Um, Representative McDermott, I think, came up with a plan uh, calling for this. So it is, uh, again, very popular. It's got a lot of support. Um, ultimately, it's going to be the Department of Health and the governor uh, who make the call. But this really does seem to be something that's really getting some traction and people are actually doing the work of 
making it feasible with very technical uh, details. And Representative McDermott, I, I think, was hoping that the airlines could, you know, be in charge of this program. Uh, you know, and, and my question to Hawaiian Airlines when we talked with them was, okay, so, you know, what do you think about this idea? And I don't know that, that they necessarily want it, but, uh, you know, there's some legal issues about what they can do. You know, can they deny somebody, you know, boarding on the plane because, you know, they don't have a... a something that says that they tested, you know, negative for COVID. So it's just a really interesting idea, but you have so many people, you know, stakeholders that are involved in this. That's right. And and there are legal issues. Uh, and I talked to, again, the Lieutenant Governor about that. And uh, last week, I asked the Attorney General uh, about something like this. And it does seem doable. I, th- I think the key is uh, to make it a voluntary uh, program so that if people uh, choose, they can get tested and then forego the 14-day quarantine. Uh, that seems to be the key to making it legal. Who would do the testing um, is is another issue. I'm not sure the airline uh, could or would want to be in charge of it. But again, the state that is in charge of the quarantine um, could say, well, if you have this documentation, you don't have to do it. That seems to be okay. Right. And I know the governor had said that he wants to make sure that, you know, whatever paperwork the passengers have in hand, that, you know, it's it's legit. Uh, and, uh, you know, so lots of little details that, you know, need to be worked out with this, uh, and including, you know, who's going to pay for this test? Right. So that's another question. It, this test could cost $120 at least or more per test. It's, it's quite a bit. Uh, the state has money from the federal uh, CARES Act and could probably use it for to, to help with that or pay for the test. Um, or it could contribute uh, to it or have the passengers pay. The lieutenant governor's point is that people uh, will like this if they're traveling here they might be willing to pay some uh, knowing that they're coming to a really safe place where everyone's being tested or again the state it could be really worth the state's interest to pay if we can get people off of unemployment and um, save that money yeah well lots of interest in this subject you know based on the hits that you're getting and the comments uh, after your story but um, yeah interesting point but thanks so much Stuart thank you Catherine That was business reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check from Honolulu Civil Beat. Check out his story at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Waimea Valley, announcing its reopening with botanical gardens, gift shop, and snack bar open daily from 9 to 5. Ohana-style picnics available for takeout. More at waimeavalley.net. The state is expected to lift the 14-day quarantine for inter-island travel next week. The Kamaina Market and staycations will be the focus for many hoteliers. The iconic Mauna Lani on the Kona Coast is an alberge, a luxury resort that just snagged a place on the prestigious Condé Nast Travel Top 20 Hot List. And it's not the only award that it's in line for. We talked to General Manager Sanji Huligali about his marketing strategy as he awaits the green light for trans-Pacific travel. I'm actually proud and honored for, you know, obviously for Monolani and, and to receive such such an incredible award, you know, recognizing the beauty uh, of this beautiful resort. The many people who are associated with it, our employees here have been here for sort of an average 28-year 
tenure of, of being part of the Monolani. You know, for three decades, the Monolani has been known as a, a very much a spiritual haven, a special place for, you know, rejuvenation and, and inspiration. You know, I have, I have these great stories. I've been in touch with all the wonderful guests who've been part of it, a beautiful resort for years, and I, I send them every week, every uh, two weeks, I send them a little note talking about uh, memories of, of Monolani, and I get these wonderful connections of, I brought my, my kids over here when they were tiny, or I, you know, this is where I proposed, and this is where we had our wedding, or we, this is where we first met, so, and, you know, hear about the ponds and, and the turtles, and, you know, just like a reimagination of keeping the traditions alive and reconnecting with the memories of it. You know, given the timing, you know, winning international awards, obviously, to me, more than than ever right now, but really this award is not only for, for the resort, it's actually for the entire state of Hawaii. And we've all, all had some bad news and, and we've gone through this for the last few months, including uh, a lot of our employees who've had to go through it in, in other resorts. So anything like this is, is really a recognition for the greatness of of Hawaii and, and the wonderful vacations people remember coming here. I think these awards will attract more tourism. In the meantime, while we got this contest, we had a Departures Legends Award, and we're just about to get an incredible uh, design award for the Maunalani as one of the best renovated uh, properties as well. So, so lots to come, and I, I see it as, as a recognition for the great state of Hawaii. When are you looking to uh, book guests into the hotel? August 1st is reservation books are open. We're obviously hoping that the governor and, and the state uh, opens up tourism and takes the quarantine off. And also the collaboration with the flights has more flights coming in. Direct flights are important for, for the big island. And I actually, you know, was talking to someone this morning, which was, which is quite interesting, the number of interest of guests wanting to come back and stay in the month of August and September and October, we've had an a overwhelmingly um, number of calls and, and emails we've received to come and visit is, is very high, which is wonderful to see. We, although we are sort of, you know, we want to open gradually in a, in a phased approach so that we can at least get the resort open in August. So I think there's a, a major pent of demand and hopefully that will continue and, and really become, become actual and I think they're all waiting for for some great news from the from the governor. I suppose you know we have 333 room hotel and resort, and we've got beautiful bungalows. We're actually opening up all our bungalows and uh, 70 other 70 other rooms and suites. So we'll we'll run it like a boutique hotel with the greater you know with all the wonderful amenities we have, and you know really customize guest experiences and, and really show them what we are all about. And it also gives us a gives us an opportunity to really make sure that we. We focus on sanitization and 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 making sure that the protocols of um, are, are taken care of um, as far as safety um, and making sure that guests feel that we have taken um, the, the necessary steps. And so we have a robust plan as far as um, sanitization and, and taking care of the guest rooms and our public spaces. Uh, we also want to make sure we encourage the Kamaina guests come through. Uh, during this time and experience the resorts, we have a great Kamaina special, um, and that's been very popular as well. I've had lots of friends in Oahu, for example, who you know emailed me and said, "Hey, I want to come by. You know, when are you guys opening up?" And can't wait. And I want to uh, have the the Monolani magic uh, and, and stay there uh, on the Big Island. So 
uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting uh, to see that. We've been very fortunate. We've had very low cases compared to other places. I guess marketing it as a, as a pretty safe destination because our numbers have been so low uh, you know, is a good thing. Yeah, it's it's been it's been phenomenal. I think you know the number it makes Hawaii being a safe place. I think we are being recognized globally for the number of cases and and how things have been managed. So we are definitely going to be an attractive destination of safety, and I think that's going to bring a lot of significant interest in in making plans to come or come on a uh, on a vacation. Yeah, we've we've had to lay off much 95 percent of our employees we've kept essential team members on who obviously want to maintain our, our property while while it's uh, closed uh, any idea how much lead time you'll you'll need just to to get your employees you know on the job and ready to go to get a hotel like this such a big hotel you need at least four weeks to really start planning and putting things in place and you know our goal obviously is to open as quickly as possible and ensuring a safe and obviously a comfortable environment for our team members, guests, and, and, our, and obviously our local community. So really working really closely on, on making sure that we, we follow the CDC uh, protocols. Obviously, we're doing a lot of planning right now um, as we're closed, but really making sure our team members are trained and ready to accept all our guests is, is important. You know, our first, our first real focus is, is our Kamaina guests, you know, making them feel comfortable and safe. Uh, and and we you know want to make sure that they are they, they feel that um, that they're comfortable and they can talk about the experiences they're having at at Monolani and that will spread to to the, to the mainland and to the world. So uh, that's going to be really important. We were talking to Sanjeev Hulagale, GM of the Monolani Resort. We were talking about the challenges of marketing the renovated resort during these COVID times while the property remains closed. The hotel still plans its uh, 4th of July Turtle Independence Day event, which features a release of endangered baby turtles back into the sea. Malamahonu is a popular conservation effort between the hotel and Sea Life Park that has been in place for 30 years.